Let me invite you to stand and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. Next week we wrap up this series in the Psalms, and we'll be on to Isaiah in a couple weeks. Psalm 7, a Psalm of David, and great if you are facing challenges and an invitation that we might seek refuge in God. So follow along with me as I read Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent... God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we ask indeed your blessing on the reading, hearing, preaching of your word. Would you lead us by your spirit that we together as your people would conduct ourselves in ways that proclaim the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray, may we ever and always find our refuge in you, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> David here in this psalm talks about how God is his refuge. He writes in verse 1, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. And this concept of refuge is something that we all maybe intuitively understand in South Texas. You look at your crispy brown lawn, and there may be a little section of it that gets shade during the day. It's shielded. It has a refuge, and that little patch is maybe green, and the rest of it is dead around it. We understand that. We understand how wonderful it is to be in the shade versus the sun. This is a biblical concept of shade being shelter in Psalm 121.5. We read, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. 
in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 6, envisioning the future kingdom. Isaiah writes, there will be a booth for shade or a tent. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and a refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. The cloud, even the cloud by day, if you think about ancient Israel, the pillar of cloud that they followed in their wilderness wanderings provided shade for them. We need shelter. We need refuge. And the question this morning that Psalm 7 asks is, who do we take refuge in? Where do we find shelter? You see, there are things, and I don't need to tell you this, there are things that happen in life, situations we face, people sinning against us, accusing us, maybe regret we have even over our own sin, things we cannot fix, and we must seek refuge in God. If things are okay between you and because of Christ, we can say it will all work out. And that we, it may not be pleasant, but if we foolishly seek refuge in someone or something else, we will be disappointed. Here, David seeks refuge in God, and that's what we'll look at. Really think of refuge as where do you go when the storm hits? Perhaps you already have in your mind, if a tornado comes, there will be an interior room or bathroom that you could take shelter in. Where do we go when we need to take shelter, when things get hard? Psalm 7 invites us to take refuge in God. So let's look first at taking refuge in God. Let's look at our own need for refuge from David's need. Uh, look at verse 1. Oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge and then David writes who, what he needs protection from. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Maybe you're, you're in my life, it's not that dramatic. We don't have people pursuing us, chasing us. Maybe we do. But David here... And we have to sort of be forensic biblical scholars, if you will, piecing things together to become familiar with the situation that he was in. He had people who had it out for him. He had people as well that not only had it out for him, but were accusing him. And this is in verses 3 and 4. He writes, O Lord my God, if I have done this... If there is wrong in my hands, okay, what's the this? That's in the context. Verse 4, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause. That's what he's being accused of, that he has aggressively gone after his enemy without cause or he is not a loyal friend. This is what David is confronted with. People are accusing him. Nothing gets our blood boiling more than being accused of something. And likewise for David, if we can take the this in verse 3, define that by verse 4, and then go back up to what's called the superscription, that text next to verse 7, we read a Shagayan of David now that, we don't know the exact translation of that Hebrew word shagayan, so it's just left, it's transliterated in the text. 
It means with passion, probably. With passion, with emphasis. He's pouring out his heart to God when he sings this. And then we learn the occasion concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. We don't know much about Cush, but we do know his tribe. And perhaps Cush was the one who was accusing David this way. Saul was a Benjaminite. And we know, and you're probably familiar with, how Saul was appointed king of Israel, and David had a rivalry with Saul. David patiently waiting for Saul to cede the throne in God's good timing. But here, Cush, who would have been loyal probably to Saul, accusing David and trying to undermine his character and his actions. We know David faced a great rivalry back to Psalm 3 when Absalom created an insurgency against his father. So David here, accused of something he didn't do, his character maligned and falsely accused. This isn't fair, is it? It's not fair. And what does David do? I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't try to lawyer his way out of this. He doesn't try to give all the reasons defending his own character. He doesn't try to fix it because there were resources available to him as king where he could have organized things and had the end of Cush. He didn't do any of that. Instead, he entrusted himself to God and he sought God as his refuge. David declares in verse 5, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. He has not done what he's accused of. He doesn't try, as I've said, to control the situation, but instead, back to first, verse 1, in you do I take refuge. He seeks his protection, the protection of his character, his reputation with God and God alone. I don't know if you saw this back in May. There was the culmination of a four-year court case against a philosophy professor in Ohio. Don't mess with philosophy professors. And this particular philosophy professor, he refused to use the preferred pronouns of a transgendered student. And he said... Basically, I'll call you by, by whatever name you want, but because this professor is an evangelical Christian, he refused to use the pronouns and, uh, that this student wanted. And so the university said, you are discriminating, you are prejudiced against this student, and as I said, don't mess with philosophy professors because he entered into the whole nuance of this uh, conversation and conflict in all uh, grace. And from what I can tell, he lovingly responded instead of clashing and sought protection under the First Amendment. Remember that thing called the Constitution? And his uh, religious beliefs, which he's a self-proclaimed evangelical Christian, it took four years, four years 
to finally get a settlement from the university that in point of fact, he wasn't being prejudiced, he wasn't being discriminatory, but he was acting out of his conscience and his beliefs. Here's the thing. When you and I are put into difficult situations like that, how we act in the tone that we use can carry the day. And it's an invitation here, rather than meeting someone in all the dysfunction and sin of their opinion to take the high road, not just the high road, but the gospel road, and refuse to go along with the spirit of this age and to seek our refuge in God. So often we try to, oh, if I can just have this conversation, I can convince the other person. Or if I behave this way, if I just keep my head down, maybe the world won't come and bother me. But I have news for you. If you're a Christian and you believe in a biblical anthropology that in point of fact God made them male and female, if you believe that, they're coming for you. You have a target on your back. And part of the reason why we have a target on our back is because uh, this is questioning their very personhood. They make that about questioning their very personhood. And I want to tell you, I want to tell you, we are called as Christians to engage and enter into this discussion lovingly and inviting people to find God's plan. He created them male and female, sufficient for human flourishing. And I tell you this story to say this professor, from all I can tell, conducted himself in a way that was honorable and true to what God called him to. And I want to invite each of us that if someone struggles with their uh, gender or their identity, that the church is the perfect place to ask questions, and to receive substantive, truthful answers to those struggles. Christians have to be, we have to be able to winsomely discuss these things and do so in a tone that invites people to consider the glory of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. So my question to you is, how do you respond when you are accused of something, like this professor accused of being uh, prejudiced and discriminatory and uh, his very character questioned. Um, when people do that, we together seek refuge in God, knowing that he is powerful enough to fix the situation. We don't have to fix it. We don't have to win an argument. We don't have to win a court case. God is true, and He is our refuge. So I'm inviting you, rather than fix these protracted, difficult situations that we find ourselves in, to seek refuge with God and to do so in a way that showcases the goodness of the gospel. So our need, we need to take refuge in God. But who is this God that we take refuge in? What motivates us to take refuge in Him? It's His very character. His very character, and He is a just 
judge. That's in verses 6 through 11. David writes, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Notice, arise, O Lord, in your anger, not my anger. Do we understand that sometimes the things which really activate us and make us angry are not a concern to the Lord? And so he says, arise, O Lord, in your anger, understanding that David's anger does not accomplish the will of God. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. And the language here in this psalm, we, we talk about evil, wicked enemies, and we talk about a good God. These very categories are something that it seems our modern evangelical church is allergic to calling something evil, but not here in God's word. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. That, that recalls Psalm 2.1, why do the nations rage? You can kind of imagine we live in an age where the activity of evil is frenetic and frantic, trying to strike out against God's people. And so, David invites God here to arise on his behalf and lift himself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. And then we get this. You have appointed a judgment. This is what we call eschatological language here. That's a 25-cent word. Now it's a $25 word in, uh, with inflation. But what David is doing here, he's saying, God has appointed a judgment, and we are but waiting, and we are going to this point that all the universe, all the cosmos is headed to this point, and God is a just judge, and I will have my case and my ruling, and it will be in my favor one day. He's able to look out by faith and trust in a God who can bring about outcomes that will benefit his people. These outcomes are something that we might enjoy in this life. We might, but we will definitely enjoy them in the next life. And so he looks to the future. You have appointed a judgment. And part of this future view is in verse 7, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you over it, return on high. The peoples there are those who are being judged by God, the nations. And here we have an image of an assembly of the nations, and where is God in this assembly? Above it, on high, judging. Verse 8, the Lord judges the peoples. And then David is able to say, because of the way he conducted himself, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Would that God, we could say those words to God, that when someone is disingenuous with you, when someone gets angry with you, when somebody accuses you, that we act with integrity and that we showcase our hope and refuge is in God. Look at this in verse 9. What a prayer for 2022. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. We long for that. We long for this judgment that is pictured in the end of all evil to come about. Verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. 
And may you establish the righteous. This idea of establishing the righteous, it's causing us to be strengthened and to stand. For those who are in Christ, you are declared righteous because of what Christ did on your behalf at the cross. God is then the one who is over the assembly. He is the one judging. He is the one, verse 9, who is able to test the minds and the hearts. He can perceive and wade through all the inner secret motivations of people's hearts. And David declares that he is a righteous God, a God who is holy and right in everything. When we talk about taking our refuge in God, look at verse 10, my shield is with God. In other words, David is saying, this is where my protection is. A shield is between you and harm. And David is saying that his shield is with God, and God saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, verse 11, and a God who feels indignation every day. Well, what does this mean? This means that God's disposition towards evil and the wicked, he is ready to come to the aid of his people. That even in this evil age, God is ready to judge the wicked and to protect his people and to come to their help and their aid. And so our refuge is in this just judge. And where's the application here for us? Part of what we're called to do is what David does here and that's to endure unfair treatment. So often we strike out and by our own ingenuity, by our own organizational skills, we will try to solve the problem. But instead, sometimes God's people were called just to endure the unfair treatment, to get to the other side of it, knowing that God is the one who takes up our case and defends us better than we can. So God is our shield. He is a righteous judge, and his stance towards the wicked is one of anger that they are acting this way. Now, we need to get to verse 17 because it's this beautiful ending to this psalm that takes life as it is and talks about good and evil and the wicked and refuge and to get there, we go through verses 12 through 16, and we find there this really has the tone of the wisdom literature. So the Psalms are part of the wisdom literature with Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Proverbs, and it sounds like that in verses 12 through 16. And here in verse 12, we have a wonderful picture of God's mercy and His stern and true judgment brought together. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. To wet the sword is to sharpen it. And then we get this picture in verse 12. He has bent and readied his bow. If you ever do any bow hunting, you've got to pull that bow back, wait for that shot. That's the image here of who God is. And we don't usually talk like that in modern evangelicalism, do we? How do you picture God? God is 
sharpening his sword, ready to destroy the wicked, or he's got the bow pulled back and he's ready to let the arrow fly. And it's not just a broadhead arrow. Verse 13, he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. God's judgment and power is actually good news for Christians because we are those who are described in verse 12 as those who repent. You see God's mercy here. If a man does not repent, this is how God is towards him. But if we repent, we abide in the mercy of God. And what that means is we get what we don't deserve. And so if we have placed our faith in Christ, we get that which we do not deserve. We have repented. What is repentance? Turning away from our sin to God, endeavoring to live God's way. And so the mercy of God is seen here in that he gives opportunity for people to repent. But if they do not, judgment waits. It is a reality that should strike fear in any of those who are apart from Christ, that if we do not repent, we will meet God as he who is sharpening his sword and he who has bent and readied his bow. We might think of ourselves, to ourselves, oh, this, this is portraying God as, as Zeus uh, here, you know, instead of a bow, God ha- uh, Zeus has a lightning bolt, and it's, it's kind of the same. It is not that at all. Not that at all. Because you see the opportunity for repentance and the grace of God envisioned here that he allows people to turn from their sin and avoid judgment through Christ. Verses 14 through 16 show us the folly of evil and the wicked that you and I, when we hear those outrageous stories of different things that are happening in our culture which make our stomach turn, we can go with confidence to these verses and know that the mischief, verse 16, will return upon his own head. That even though the wicked man digs a pit, who ends up falling into it? This is how the world works. This is how the cosmos works. God is our shield and he is a righteous judge. And as a result, verse 17, we can give him thanks. We can give thanks to this just judge. As you have surveyed through here, Psalm 7, it's incredible to think about what's how abrupt verse 17 is. What has changed? Has Cush the Benjaminite got his? Has that happened? We don't have any evidence of that. In other words, David has reached the end of Psalm 7 and nothing has changed, but he's able to give thanks to the Lord. The thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Verse 17, the way this psalm ends is possible because David has rehearsed for himself exactly who God is. He has been reminded of the wonderful character and grace of God in the stern judgment 
that David didn't receive, that falls on those who are evil and wicked. I will give thanks to the Lord due to His righteousness. Righteousness there is shorthand for God's holiness, that God keeps His promises, and that everything God does is right. So David gives thanks, and he gives praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. You know, David here is not the victim of evil. He is not the victim. And Christians should never adopt the victim mentality. Nothing has changed. David is still falsely accused. And yet, David gives thanks and he gives, sings praise to God because he is confident that he will be the victor. All those who are in Christ, we are victors, not victims. We are victors. And one day we will see this happen in the future because our God is a just judge. And rather than trying to fix everything, we can seek protection and refuge in Him. And we can give thanks and sing praise now and one day finally because God, even in this evil age, God is our refuge. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank You that You are a just judge, that You give us opportunities to repent that we, in Christ, do not receive that which we deserve. And we pray that instead of trying to fix everything, that we would embrace the refuge that you are, and by so doing, we would know and experience the great love that you have for us. Let us behave and act in ways in this evil age that show forth the wonderful truth of the gospel as we love our enemies, and as we proclaim the hope that we have in him alone. Thank you for being our refuge and strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.